I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm here today with Emil Sherman, uh, the co-founder of Seesaw Films and of course the Oscar-winning producer of The King's Speech and many other amazing films. Emil, it's, it's great to see you. Nice to see you, Mike. Uh, there's a, there's a, a wonderful irony that we actually ran into each other after all these years down at uh, Iceberg Swimming Pool at yeah, Bondi. Yeah, it's the place to be in Sydney. It's sort of weird, it's probably the last place you'd expect to be this sort of um, international multicultural hub of uh, interesting people. But I guess we also, we're like migratory birds that return home. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot more of that happening, I think. And uh, certainly in our professions, there's a lot of travelling. So, of course, I've been a big fan of your films over the years. Uh, but I'm always amazed because, in some ways, you started uh, in between both worlds. Uh, you studied English, but you also studied law. And I, I remember you at law because you were a couple of years ahead of me. We worked in that terrible building that looked like it came from North Korea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It'll get back into fashion one day. <laughs> which, of those, I mean, which of those two worlds propelled you first into, I guess, the movie business? Was it the business side or was it the, I guess, the arts and philosophy side? Yeah, I mean, it was something that I never thought of at the time when I did those degrees, but uh, I was working, I remember a few years into my career, I was working with a producer in the UK called Nick Powell, and he said, oh, he doesn't like uh, the new breed of producers coming through who, who are studying film, that, uh, you know, really the best things you could do to be a film producer is to do a literature and a law degree. I thought that's totally random. That's exactly what uh, what I did at university, and I never thought, in, you know, it never even occurred to me I'd end up as a film producer. So, you know, I think what I find so stimulating about this job is that you are across so many different areas. You're across finance. You're across contracts and legal things. You're across project management. You're across um, the creative process, which is absolutely at the heart of it, and you know, is really the the centre of, of of what we're trying to do, which is to to make good movies. Uh, so people say it's a creative business and I think, you know, uh, as, as a producer and certainly as a company, you're, you're only as good as the, the weakest part of that. What was the first step for you? What, what, what dragged you into making movies? Um, I was, I finished my uni degree. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was traveling around the world. I ended up teaching English in Krakow in Poland. <laughs> um, and a friend of mine, and then, and then two things happened uh, at the same time, really. I, I went to visit my great-great-uncle Hutzko in Vilnius, in, in Lithuania, in Vilna. And off the back of that, ended up being involved in a documentary called Uncle Hutzko. Uh, he, he was 94 at the time, he'd survived the Holocaust. The family knew about him, but hadn't really had much contact with him. And I was the first to, I guess... In a way, we sort of step back in time and, and, and meet Uncle Hutzko, who'd been living behind the Iron Curtain all those years. And he wrote the Russian-Lithuanian Dictionary, the oh, Russian-Yiddish, wow. the, the Lithuanian-Yiddish Dictionary. He was the most famous uh, lexicographer in Lithuania, and I'd always loved linguistics and languages. So he was a sort of strange hero of mine as I was growing up. Um, and off the back of that, made a documentary, which ended up, it was my cousin Rod Friedman uh, directed it and was, was the lead producer. And it really made me understand how, how a small personal story 
can have enormous resonance. It ended up doing, doing really well and people were very touched and moved by it. At the same time, a friend of mine who I went to law school with said, why don't I come back to Australia and, and, and make a feature film that he was working on with his brother? And I came back to Australia and I worked on that film at the same time as Uncle Hut School and just got into the business by, by getting into it. This was sample people, This was right? sample people yeah. all those years ago. And, and I think there's been two sides to my approach to, 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 to filmmaking, certainly through those early years. And I had three different companies, uh, one with, with Barton, one with um, a partner then, Jonathan Stein, and a company called Ocean Pictures. Uh, and then I, then I went off by myself and did a, a bunch of movies under Sherman Pictures and then Seesaw. So I've had right. a number of incarnations. But it's, it's, uh, it's, I guess it's, it's take the, the two pools. One are, we need to, this is a commercial business. We need to look at the market and deliver films for the market, what we think other people will want to see. And the second is, what do I like? What resonates with me personally? What am I interested in? And they felt like almost two different worlds at the beginning. And I think it's taken me, you know, I've been in this probably 18 years now. It's taken me a long time to pull those two strands together. And I think as a, as a company, and me and my partner, Ian Canning, we're partners in, in Seesaw across the group, um, are focused on making films that, that do resonate, that they feel they have to be truthful. You know, I read so many scripts that are well-structured and they've got a good genre you know, hook and clearly the writer knows what they're doing. But they're just not truthful to the moment. No, you wouldn't do that if you were that character in that time. Mm. They're putting the plot ahead of the, the truth, the human truth. And when you say truth, you don't mean literally like documentary truth. Do no, you mean, I don't mean documentary truth. You mean truth. emotional truth. I mean emotional truth. You know when you're watching a movie, it's that <laughs> smell test, isn't it? Well, I guess it's not a smell, it's that emotional test where you go, this is fun, but it doesn't feel right. And we're always... You know, and, and that's, that's, that's hard to find. The writers where, you know, we work with a writer called Luke Davies on a, on a few projects. He's a poet. Hmm. Finding people who can get to the emotional truth is, is harder than finding people who can craft, but you need people who can craft. So, so understanding the importance of emotional truth and knowing that you can only judge that by what resonates inside you as an individual, so you're using your body as the market test. Yeah. Um, but balancing that with the other side, which is really having a deep understanding of the marketplace, of distributors in each territory, um, of, of what it takes to sell a film, because we're working in the independent film sector, which is you know, different from Hollywood um, or the big studio sector. Uh, we, we make films that generally are sold to different territories around the world. We work with sales agents, we work with distributors in lots of territories. Uh, my partner Ian uh, started in the sales business and he understands that very well. But that is absolutely crucial because I've also made movies where the film's been a good movie, but it hasn't it hasn't found an audience because we haven't specifically targeted the, the, the right marketplace. And it doesn't mean just the audience demographic, but it means which distributor is going to take the risk on this film and how are they going to release it? Is it a wide release film 
or is it a small film, a smaller release that relies on publicity? And and I guess we've made just through through the process of making films and working out what we're interested in, what we've got some ability at, we've carved out a niche for ourselves in making films that um, they're really called upscale quality movies or films <laughs> that, you know, maybe there used to be a term, you know, art house breakout films. They're films that uh, are review driven at its center. So they're not going to just, you're not going to get an audience by just spending millions on advertising. Yeah. Um, and, they, and you're not you're not developing an Emil Sherman Marvel universe of characters. No, right? no, no, exactly. <laughs> but you're you're you know they need to have uh, to be review driven. So they have to be films that are going to be reviewed well, quality movies, films that uh, you know I guess are innovative and in saying something about the human condition. Uh, but at the same time have the potential and not always achieve this potential but have the potential to break out and to be right. released wider than that and the king's speech was obviously the the, the highest example of, of what we were trying we've been trying to do um it, you know if that film hadn't have been as good as it ended up being it could have still been released you know in america on 300 screens in australia it would have been released on 40 screens in the uk on 80 screens and there would have been a place for it, but because it turned out really well, and, and distributors wouldn't have lost money on the middle version of that film. Right. But if, if it turned out really well, as that one did turn out well, you could then have that as the base and go much wider. So you, you almost need, wider. what I hear is that you almost need a groundswell around it. Um, people need to experience it, they need to then talk to their friends about it, so you need time you know, for it to propagate. Well, that, that's right, and there used to be a lot more time in distribution. There used to be a lot more called platform releases where you yeah. start slow. America still does it in a, in a strange way, <clears throat> most uh, you know, uh, impatient culture in the world. They do, I think because of the number of cities there, they do start films like that still today, slowly, and then release wider and wider. But most countries in the world, you know, you just don't have the time to do that. So distributors have to make a decision early on. Mm. Does this film have the capacity to break out beyond the the sort of big art house world into the more commercial world, and then they decide in their marketing what to do? Um, the tricky area, and probably we're jumping the gun here and talking about the, the the changes in the market, but the really tricky area now, as compared to maybe five years ago plus, is the is the market for really art house movies. So. You know, the films I'm talking about the, that, that we're trying to focus on, like The King's Speech might be like Macbeth, which probably ended up being a little more art house than, than, than we thought. Uh, but in some territories like Italy, it was released and many other territories, it was released really wide as like a Braveheart, you know, really yeah. action type version. I think Macbeth also has a natural resonance to Italian politics. Yeah, it's, probably, <laughs> it's right. like they've been living through a Shakespearean tragedy. Well, it, it actually did really well in Poland as well. And you just go, you know, I, having lived in Poland, you realize as dark as Macbeth and our version of it was, um, you know, in Eastern Europe, that's just another day of, of living. I mean, these are cultures that have a, a history of, of, of uh, depth and darkness that I think in Australia with our, with our beaches, um, you know, a lot of people find hard to imagine. Um, but but I think today you, you you need if you're going to do those I guess quality 
potential breakout movies, they have to have enough scale. Mm. Uh, they have to have a hook. They have to have cast. They have to have a director of the level whereby they are more than what you can get on television. Yeah. And I think that's the great challenge that we're facing in the film industry is that um, if you make a really nice little execution, you know, well-executed art house movie, people get that stuff on TV now. You know, the great story with unknown actors and, yeah. and, and they can watch it week after week. And it's, it's, uh, it's tricky to get people to go to the cinema unless it's something that feels like I must go and see this. It's got some conceit behind it, which is ex really exciting. What other parts of your business are you finding that technology and the, the changing way that we're consuming entertainment is, I guess, resetting the way that you now look at opportunities? Well, we're now across film and television. I mean, we started television uh, a few years ago. With top, top of the Lake. Top of the Lake. Yeah, it's an amazing show. With uh, Jane Campion. And, you know, that was uh, an incredible way to get into the television business. It was really as, as, as good as it gets, you know, for a production company. And we've just finished a series called Love Nina now with Nick Hornby, who wrote it, um, uh, and Helena Bonham Carter, which is... Uh, um, actually premiering in the Berlin Film Festival. And that, that's something which has changed. Uh, just to this, is long form, this is long-form cinema, effectively, what you're talking well, about. Well, that's right. And, and Top of the Lake was close to the beginning of that. Uh, there were amazing TV shows well before Top of the Lake. Uh, but the, the festivals embracing TV in the film festivals is something that's happened relatively uh, recently. And Top of the Lake was the first time in the Sundance Film Festival showed a TV series in its entirety. Berlin then showed Top of the Lake in its entirety. And I think it was an incredible experience for, for those festivals and they're doing a lot more of it. Uh, Love Nina has a couple of episodes there. Um, so we've gotten into television. We, we, we've got um, a head of TV, a COO um, based in London. We've got about 30 projects we're developing with broadcasters. And the changes in that landscape are obviously you know, snowballing. It's uh, every, everyone talks about how TV. Well, it's strange in a way, isn't it, that the rise of digital distribution has actually increased the popularity of the television format uh, rather than destroying it. Because uh, it's yeah, uh, that's right. I mean, I think we watch less analog television, but we watch more television on digital platforms. You know, I, I think the biggest change happened with the the TiVo type record button. Right. That's my the, the you know, time, time shifting. That's my origin story of, of, <laughs> of this change because I think, as you say, it becomes a time shifting thing. And what it does, previously television was episodic. Yeah. So TV was shorter than a film because you know you had to fit the you know NCIS episode into you know a commercial hour yeah. forty five minutes. It was, the, it was the Dick and serialized story. <laughs> yeah. It was a, well well. I mean, I think that that's the other side of it. Before it was you had. A whole narrative had to happen within 45 minutes and you could turn on any episode of any of these TV uh, right. programs and you'd feel fulfilled yeah. you know that you know sure you wouldn't know there are a few but, things with there was no there's no like over there's no big story arc and match there was no story yeah yeah <laughs> you know there were a few bits and pieces that someone who'd watched them all could piece together but essentially they were very fulfilling episodes in and of themselves but the minute people started being able to record and, and hoard your recorded mm. content and then watch it in order. Something pretty profound happened. Suddenly, it became the Dickensian serialized story, 
which meant that it was a lot longer than film. So with The Sopranos and, you know, Deadwood and all those sort of seminal early shows on, on HBO, these were bigger tableaus to tell stories than yeah. film. And that's certainly what drew Jane Campion to, to wanting to tell a television story is because, as she said at the time, and I think everyone accepts that, it's, that's television is the new novel. It's a bigger tableau than a film. Film has some pretty exciting things and in it. In some ways, there's nothing purer or more amazing than sitting down for two hours in a dark room and seeing an entire universe play out. But in the end of the day, it's two hours. It's not 13 times one hour over five seasons. Mm. Um, and then, as you say, with digital uh, distribution coming in now, so much more strongly every, every day, uh, it means that the economics have changed of the, the broadcasters. Previously, their aim was, as you know, to maximize ratings. So they needed the largest number of people to like their show so they could sell the advertising space. <laughs> but the new model of cable and basically pay, the pay per, you know, the subscription television model they want people to feel like they need to subscribe in order to have access to a world of content that they couldn't get anywhere else. Yeah. So they are competing with each other for to be the bravest, the most original, the most outrageous in some ways, to push the boundaries, to have the awards, so which creates the publicity. And this is an incredible movement because it plays right into film companies home advantage so in a weird way you know you look at a, a, i think some legacy tv production companies are struggling in this new environment because they're used to coming up with the the criminal or medical episodic tv idea mm. but the new wave of channels are like you know we're not interested in that we need something that's different with a high level directors come from film or a writer who they want something so in independent television is dead long live independent television <laughs> yeah um and independent television and independent film are really fusing and uh certainly the talent is 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 crossing a lot more it used to be tv talent would develop and then at a point become film talent and that would happen to you know happen with tom hooper on the king's speech was one of the top english television directors who's moved to film and now one of the top you know, film directors, but now it's happening the other way. And that, in a weird way, has sort of paradoxically created some opportunities for us in our film business, because it means that there is not as much film content out there as there used to be. When you go to the markets for film now, Cannes, to, to, you know, the AFM in LA, Toronto, you know, EFM in Berlin, um, the sales agents are there selling films to distributors all around the world and distributors have the same appetite for content because the cinemas are still there the infrastructure is there and people are going to the cinema now I said there's you know the, the fringe the really art house stuff is struggling but there's still a very big appetite there but the amount of product has dwindled because the big cast is now doing a, you know, booked out for five years on a, on a <laughs> Game, of on Game of Thrones or a Netflix <laughs> series or an HBO series. 
and the directors now decided to do a you know 13 part thing and make their name and earn more money in television um, and and you know if, if you can be all we're left with is the Avengers <laughs> yeah yeah we well, are left with the Avengers and and there's still the appetite for the quality type film but if you're a company which which we we try to be which tries to put together these these independent movies if you're successful in being able to do it you can actually sell them in a way that really five five to ten years ago it, the market particularly before the economic crisis it was out of control there there was so much money flooding into independent film mm. uh, everyone wanted non-correlated assets and was just like yes we'll put a portion <coughs> into film and and you know it was just a wash with money and it meant that there were thousands and thousands of films needing to find the same amount of shelf space in the cinemas. But now there are less of those movies. It's brutal for the art house, extreme art house world. Uh, but for this mid-zone quality crossover space, uh, if you manage to pull something together, I mean, I'll give you a recent example. We've just press released a film called Mary Magdalene that we've mm. just done. We've been developing over the past couple of years about about uh, Mary Magdalene, one of the disciples. Uh, it's a film that I guess reclaims her perspective as a disciple and tells a story through through her eyes. Um, you know that fits into this model of being you know, not major, major expensive, but it's not a small budget movie. It's got cast, uh, it's got a director who we've worked with now over a few things, including our film Lion. Um, we've got a reputation in the industry, so we can, you know, we, we have distributors who trust us. And we found that it was so well received uh, when we took it out to market that, uh, you know, we managed to sell it to Universal Pictures International mm. uh, for the world, excluding uh, the US and, um, we are we're just finalizing a deal for the US now. One of the things that really fascinates me is that um, people often look at the film business as the ultimate example of creative collaboration uh, because people come together, very talented people with very big egos often, come together, they produce something and then they kind of disband. Yeah. And the reason why I think this is becoming very relevant is that we're now all trying to think about what the future of work is going to be like. Um, you know, whether you're an Uber driver or you're a freelancer, the idea of a permanent job and a permanent office is starting to become less relevant. So, you know, as somebody who has worked with, you know, very creative people in the past, how do you make that work? I mean, when you watch a director, how do, what, is, what do the best directors do to kind of marshal talent, keep something on track and produce something that has, as you said, emotional truth? It is such a strange world, this 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 weird beast of, of, of making a, a movie. Um, you know, just thinking about as you're talking about that Shakespeare in Love with Jeffrey Rush's character talking about the theatre and, and the the craziness of that world, and somehow it just all happens and it works. Um, it is this hot house, and everyone is working to one goal, and you know, there's usually incredible time pressure. Trying to pull a film together as a producer is is the most unfortunate job in many ways because it's like a, a major structured finance project with <laughs> you know dis distributors uh, giving us their you know having contracts with distributors and using that as security to bank it to you get 
extra um, bank debt in the form of uh, gap finance. You have equity from different countries. We use a lot of co-production treaties. You've got tax credits. You've got equity financiers. You're trying to pull that all together. But there's a hard start date because the actors told you that they're available in this short window. Now, the actor doesn't sign anything until you've got the money in the bank to pay them. So that means they're not going to sign anything until everyone signs everything. So the, the, the closing of the contracts happen at the same time. And so you are at the mercy of all the elements until the absolute last minute. And usually that last minute happens well into pre-production, which is when you've got the full team together and you're paying lots of money out. Mm. And things fall apart all the time. Um, it is a strange beast. Uh, and there's a feeling that, that the film always comes first. So it can be quite a brutal uh, process where everyone knows that in a way the film is the most important thing in their lives over that period. It becomes right. a very intense work. But, but that kind of time pressure and common goal brings people together as well. It really does. And I think people become addicted uh, to that feeling. Uh, people who work on the crew side, uh, you know, led by the line producer and production manager and the first assistant director. Um, there are, you know, the production designer and their whole team, art directors, the cinematographer and their whole team. Uh, you know, there are 100 plus people all there who go from film to film. I mean, that's a different job to mine in the sense that the shooting and production period is one period within a very long life cycle of a movie that starts during the script development for a couple of years, uh, the financing, packaging of it, making it, shooting it, and then there's the post-production, which is normally nine months after you finish shooting it, hmm. and then there's the release. So we're on this much longer cycle, uh, but the intense middle stage is probably more akin to a building, you know, I'm more the property developer, and then there's the the building phase. It's almost like a startup. It's a startup. It's, you know, things <laughs> to venture capital in a startup. And it's, 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 it is a bit like a startup. Uh, is, is it quite hierarchical? I mean, do you find that when people, there's so many different moving parts in a film. Yeah. Is it, is it very much command and control with the director, like micro scrutinizing every little part of it, or does it tend to be a bit more organic? You know, one of the amazing things is just how different each director is. At the right. beginning, I thought, I thought there'd be more uniformity amongst the, the personality of a director. Some, some are, are, you know, almost passive. They just tinker at the edges and just make sure they're like sheep, uh, sheep dogs. <laughs> you know, just making sure everything is going towards. And in some ways, that's the role of a producer as well, um, making sure everything's on track. And you, but you let the creative people, you let their people that they've chosen. Um, the heads of department, you know, blossom. And other people are incredibly micromanaging. Um, and it really depends on the person. But it is... Is one, know, one approach tend to be more effective than the other? You know, I'd say... I'd say not, to be honest. Um, I do think... It is amazing when you take someone and you give them the benefit of your confidence in them and you let them fly how much, you know, what, what amazing work they can do. Mm. But you do need, the, the director is such a, you know, a, a, a key ingredient. I mean, I, I can never, 
you know, overstate how important it is that even if you think the director is not doing that much, they are pulling together the vision for this show. You know, you see a production designer work on a number of things and some of the things are good and some are not. I mean, I guess directors as well do good and bad work, but they do imprint their vision. Hmm. And it's all those micro decisions that are made that are done in conjunction with the cinematographer, in conjunction with the editor. And then I, I guess our role as producer is to step, sit one step above that and work with the director and you know, be their sounding board and help make sure that this whole beast is guided towards um, you know, its intended uh, you know, dock or whatever analogy you want to use, that it's going to sit in the market, that it is going to be truthful, it is going to be surprising. It's, it's, uh, you know, everyone gets too close. As a producer, we've seen all the rushes we've seen you know, we've been on set at times, we've, we've seen 50 edits of the movie and at a point you get worn out, but certainly the director does and, you know, that's an amazing relationship, that producer-director relationship, it's, a, it's an incredible one. For you personally, what is it that gets you out of bed about this business? What is it that excites you the most? Um, I, I, I don't think I've ever gotten over the... the the real sense of awe and privilege it is to actually be making something. Like I, when, I, when I'm developing a show, I'm doing it with my best attention and focus, but part of me believes it's never going to get made. <laughs> like, it would be a miracle if it happened. Even when you're looking at that Oscar right in front of yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we've got obviously a lot more... Um, not more relationships and strength in the marketplace now than we had before, but there is something extraordinary about actually pulling this together. It is, as a producer, you are herding cats. There's so many moving elements. They're all running off in their other direction. No one is focused on what you want them to be focused on. You've got cast with five offers for that period, a director with four offers for that period, financiers who you know, who like it in theory, but they've, you know, they've all got problems with the deal and, and you know, you realize it's never going to happen and you've got to grab it and bring it all together. And it's actually incredibly emotionally exhausting. Um, I think I've got to the point of it now where, where you know, having a, the support, I brought in a lot of great people into Seesaw, really senior people and having that support's invaluable. Um, uh, but, but, to be able to make stories, I think in the end of the day, that's what our business is and that's what gets me out in the morning, gets me out of bed in the morning. Emil, it was great to see you. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks very much. <laughs> Enjoy it. Thank you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.